here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. I am Benjamin Day. And I am Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. Including all K-pop fans all over the world who came together to sync the Trump rally. Yes, for those who haven't heard, uh, Trump had a coronavirus rally in Oklahoma, and a bunch of young people uh, filled out fake reservations so that he ended up with an empty stadium. And it turns out they mostly were from South Korea, where they already have single-payer <laughs> health care, those lucky bastards. <laughs> so today, y'all are lucky, we have a really special guest, Mark Dudzik, the national coordinator of the labor campaign for single-payer. Uh, thank you, Mark, for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, Ben and Stephanie. Yeah, thanks. So could you just tell us first, um, how did you get into the single-payer movement? Wow. Well, um, I was the president of a, a union in the a union called the Oil Chemical Atomic Workers, a local union in New Jersey that had about 40 different uh, s- small chemical and pharmaceutical plants under contract. Um, and uh, in the 1980s, we began to see that, you know, we were having more and more of a struggle on uh bargaining for uh, health care for our members. Um, and um, we actually uh, invited uh, David Himmelstein to speak at our district council meeting in 1988. One of the OGs uh, of the single parent yeah. movement. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think this is not long after they actually launched PNHP, the Physicians for National Health Program. Um, and. Uh, and I got to say, you know, when I first saw David show up, I was like, man, who is this hippie doctor? You know, what's he going <laughs> to, what does he know about healthcare? care? Uh, but, you know, he really framed, you know, the, the issue, you know, made us, made me think about, you know, why are we bargaining for health care? You know, what is this crazy system that we have that says that we have to go to our boss and ask our boss to pay for our health care? Uh, and, you know, so we really, it was like a, a huge eye opener. Uh, so our union, we moved this issue through my union, the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers. Uh, and at our 1989 convention, our national convention, you know, we sort of embraced it as a core issue. And so I've been in this fight ever, ever since then. And, you know, I've seen this deterioration uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for working people of uh, health care and, the, you know, the mistake, uh, what it means for workers uh, you know, day in and day out to have linked their health care to employment in this country, unlike every other country in the world. So mm. I, I think I, I think it's just a central issue. You know, if you want to talk about uh, building a better world around the needs and concerns of working people and empowering working working people in that world, you know, health care is the real tip of the wedge. And I really I think that that's why I've embraced this so so comprehensively over the years. 
Yes, and I, I should say you are also, I think, one of the OGs of our movement. Um, <laughs> we've been around for, for quite a while, and um, we should, uh, full disclosure, we, we work a lot together. Um, we t uh, jointly organize the National Single-Payer Strategy Conference every year, except for uh, possibly the next two years. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know when we'll be able to do it next. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit, Let's uh, before we get to coronavirus times, which have really um, upended um, both the healthcare world and the, the world of work, I'd say, um, and especially the intersection of the two, which is kind of where you live and work, um, let's let's step back to just before coronavirus, uh, when we were, we thought the biggest thing that was going to happen this year was going to be a presidential election. And we were uh, tuning into way too many Democratic primary debates. Um, and Medicare for All was really like the number one issue. Um, and interestingly, and kind of uh, stunningly to me, the opponents of Medicare for All who were on the stage, this is primarily, you know, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, were attacking it, saying that it was going to hurt, take away workers' health care. Um, I mean, how did that hit you? And how does that reflect your, you know, the window you have on, on, onto all these workers and especially union, uh, union workplaces where, where, where workers are covered by workplace and health insurance? Yeah, I was really struck by that. The, the frontal assault on Medicare for all, uh, during, during the democratic debates. Um, and, you know, in response, I actually wrote a piece in, I think it was January, maybe December, uh, titled Take My Benefits, Please. Uh, <laughs> Employment-based health care is an anchor around the neck of the U.S. working class. Um, you know, and uh, you know that, that people would celebrate this crazy system that we have um, that links employment, uh, health care to employment. So if you lose your job, you lose your health care. If you go on strike, you can lose your health care. If you get sick, you often lose your health care. Um, you know, it's just outrageous. And, you know, and also oblivious to the fact that for a entire generation, uh, health care has been the biggest cause of strikes and lockouts and um, concession bargaining uh, with uh, unionized employers, the workers who are lucky enough to even have a say in what kind of health care that they get. And, you know, a constant deterioration in the standards for all working class Americans. So it was just such a uh, uh, outrageous way to frame it. And, you know, and, and I think that that's talking points that were developed by, you know, people who have a real stake in the system for profit uh, industry uh, who are very smart about this idea about uh, that uh, sociologists call loss aversion, um, that people are often more motivated by the fear of losing something that they have uh, rather than the hope of gaining something that they need. Um, and so they, uh, you know, it's a way to manipulate people's thoughts. We, you know, I like to joke that the only people, the only thing people hate worse than their health insurance company is the fear of being without any health insurance. And that's the kind of way that loss, loss aversion plays on people. And the same thing that they're doing to Medicare recipients, you know, saying this Medicare for all is going to mean that you're going to lose your Medicare because everybody will have Medicare. It's like, you know, you don't think it's going to work, but it works. It really is this pernicious way of, of uh, uh, manipulating people's deepest fears and insecurities. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's the way they, they played it. 
Um, and I was actually struck with how people rejected that formulation. You know, and I, you know, I think that that's what really means that you know this is an idea whose time has come. Because uh, if you look at the polling, no matter who people voted for, um, a majority of uh, primary voters believe in and support Medicare for all, even in the face of these kind of uh, nasty uh, industry-based talking points. And so this, this has really kind of cleared uh, 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 the, uh, the first hurdle that we have to clear in order to really think about a, uh, uh, winning this uh, in a uh, foreseeable time frame. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, uh, this thing that's usually considered really a special benefit, like having a union health care insurance plan, um, is you know something that everybody wants, and everybody in my family has always been so felt so fortunate to have. Um, is actually just another lever of power for employers to control uh, their employees and um, to use against them at, at the bargaining table. Um, I'm just interested in how do countries um, with already a Medicare for all or a single payer healthcare system, how does that affect uh, unionists and union workers in other countries? Yeah, well, if you look at the rest of the industrialized world, um, you know, we're really the only workers who uh, either have to bargain for our health care or have to beg our employer for health care, depending on whether or not we have a union or not. Uh, and, you know, this has a huge impact on workers' bargaining power. It, I, I don't think it's any um, uh, coincidence that, you know, workers in this country are about the only workers who don't have guaranteed paid leave, who don't have guaranteed rights to due process on the job, and all of the other things that make life a little bit more secure and give working people a little more power over the, the terms and conditions of their own lives uh, in all, uh, the rest of the industrialized world. Uh, uh, so again, because we have to waste so much of our bargaining power and because we are so reliant on our employers uh, to provide this you know, fundamental need that everybody has for access to uh, health care. Um, you know, we've we've frittered away our bargaining power in ways that, you know, workers in the U.S. are less secure than workers almost anywhere else uh, in the uh, industrialized world. And I remember uh, one vivid moment from the debates was um, when the Las Vegas Culinary Union kind of took a run at Bernie Sanders a little bit. Um, it, it wasn't a frontal attack on Medicare for All, but um, they had sort of a very misleading pamphlet that they were handing out to members uh, saying that, you know, uh, Biden and Buttigieg would defend uh, the culinary health plan and that uh, Sanders was going to take away the, the culinary health plan. Um, kind of loaded language, even though they didn't endorse a candidate. And of course, the press really pounced on this. You know, CNN and uh, the New York Times, they were just thrilled to have a, a union kind of coming out openly, taking the side against Medicare for all. These are all kind of, you know, there's a lot of media institutions that uh, lean very anti-Medicare for all, I'd say. Um, so what did you make of that? Because um, I know that your your campaign worked heavily on the next primary, South Carolina, where this was not repeated, I think, uh, possibly because of a lot of the organizing you all did. Uh, what went down in Las, on Las Vegas, and how was it different in South Carolina? Ah, well, you know, th this was a real watershed moment for 
labor and single payer, I think, uh, the loss, the Nevada primaries. Uh, the Culinary Union, which represents uh, most of the casino workers in casino hotel workers in Las Vegas, um, you know, is a really good union. It has, you know, these are primarily uh, immigrant workers who have through, you know, decades of smart strategic struggle have you know, clawed their way into a, you know, middle class um, existence, or at least they did before the whole industry collapsed uh, under COVID. Um, and, you know, and have also built a really, you know, one of the best um, healthcare plans that working people in this country have uh, can expect to to achieve. You know, it's a it's a pretty good plan, and they they are really proud of that plan and very supportive of their union um, and very engaged in their union. Uh, and so when their you know their union told them that Bernie Sanders would uh, cause them to lose their health plan. I think the union really expected that the members would would flock to that position and uh, do the do the right thing, you know, which was not to vote for Bernie Sanders in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, but guess what? You know, the, these workers and thanks, may, you know, in many ways to the kind of activism that this, the union had always promoted among them. Uh, these workers saw through that and realized, you know, that they are part of a working class that they, you know, they have friends and family uh, and neighbors whose benefits uh, are not guaranteed by the strong union contract that they were able to achieve. And they also realized how precarious their own benefits were because it was dependent on the fact that they were employed by a particular casino and were members of a particular union. And so, Majorities of these workers, members of the culinary union um, in the primary actually voted for Bernie Sanders and did so because they supported Medicare for all. And that was a real wake up call, I think, for uh, for labor leaders around the country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we didn't have the same kind of dynamic in South Carolina. Um, one of the reasons is unions don't play the kind of central role in democratic politics that the culinary plays in Las Vegas. Uh, um, but, you know, the, it was uh, and in fact, in some ways, the argument was a lot easier to put before union workers in South Carolina because unions don't have the density and the strength that they do in Las Vegas. They already knew how uh, precarious their health care was. Their employers were constantly hammering at it and comparing their health care to the rest of the South Carolina working class that had little or no health care. Uh, so I think the argument actually was easier to make in South Carolina. Um, Bernie didn't do good in South Carolina, but over 60% of the Democratic primary voters um, supported Medicare for all in South Carolina. So... Um, you know, I think we've won that argument among working people, and I think the labor movement has uh, begun to wake up to that fact. You know, a lot of times you talk to union leaders and they'll say, well, yeah, you know, I support Medicare for all, but the members aren't ready for it. They want, mm -hmm. you know, they they want to keep a hold on to their health insurance plans and we just can't go to the members with this issue. So the members have come to them now and shown mm -hmm. them uh, the mm -hmm. way forward. And uh, I think that it's really changed uh, the way that unions are going to move forward on this issue. 
Yeah, so another argument that I sometimes hear against uh, Medicare for All from the union perspective is that, you know, we're in an age of um, attacks on unions, for example, um, the Janus, the recent Janus lawsuit that sort of struck down the right of unions to um, collect fees for collective bargaining uh, from all workers who benefit. It's going to make it a lot harder for unions to keep members. Um, and that benefits like health care is um, one of those one of the ways that we keep unions relevant and attractive for workers. Um, how would you respond to that? Yeah, well, actually, that's exactly what I've been hearing from unions like some of the unions and uh, public worker unions in New York state, you know, Janice, it basically says that workers don't have to pay any fees or dues to the union, but unions still have to represent workers. Uh, and so it's a, you know, it, it is an existential crisis for unions. How do you run a union under those circumstances? And so uh, unions have sort of said, well, we've got to show the one approach is say, we've got to show value added, you know, that the union membership will, will provide certain benefits that you wouldn't get otherwise. And healthcare has been a, a key part of that. But uh, I, you know, I think what we're facing with now is, uh, and this is, we've been saying this for a long time that, you know, even in places like New York and California, we have a very strong system of public unionism and the unions have a lot of power that you are one economic or political crisis away from a crisis in your health care and i think now we're in that moment uh you know that there's going to be a massive shift to austerity uh, and concession bargaining for all public workers because uh there is a uh, huge budget shortfall that state and local governments and school boards are now experiencing and so these um amazing benefits that, for example, workers in New York City have achieved over the years, and they do have really good benefits. Um, again, uh, probably the best benefits uh, that workers can expect to have. Uh, you know, these are going to be under assault, and unions now are going to have to, in New York, are going to have to deal with the kind of crises that unions uh, in Texas and Alabama have been dealing with for decades, which is... Um, you know, they're going to have to either agree to substantial concessions in their health care or make massive concessions in other areas of wages and working conditions in order to hold on to their health care. And so, again, you know, health care has become an anchor around the neck of the working class. And that does bring us directly into <laughs> the present crisis under coronavirus. And you know, it's not just cities and states that are really struggling um, and facing massive budget shortfalls, but there are whole industries sort of going under right now. Um, I mean, it, it, I suspect that it's too early to know exactly how this is going to change the politics of Medicare in the labor movement, um, just because there are kind of more immediate, uh, desperate uh, needs that most unions are facing. But what are you seeing so far and how do you think this is going to play out over the next year or so? Well, you know, 27 million workers have lost employment-based health care in the last three months. Um, this is unprecedented. You know, this is a, a collapse of a system. Uh, so it's going to have huge ramifications. Workers are going to remember this even when they go back to employment. Um, and um, 
it's not going to, you know, it's not going to end quickly. This is, you know, this crisis continues to play out and it has an impact on the private insurance business, uh, how they do business. Uh, it has an impact on uh, how employers, when they restart operations, what they're going to be thinking about in healthcare. So we're going to, you know, we're really facing a whole new, uh, a whole new world in the uh, face of uh, this collapse of the employment-based healthcare system. And, uh, you know, I think the jury is out on, you know, exactly how this is going to play out, but uh, the opportunities to begin to organize for a more rational and humane uh, alternative, you know, are certainly there. And that's why we think that the political opportunities right now, while we're still in the midst of this crisis, is to provide sort of more expansive solutions to the emergency um, legislation that we're going to have to continue to uh, uh, support as we move forward. So speaking of political opportunities, um, it seems like the Democrats' uh, best, you know, offer uh, for workers uh, under who are dealing with losing their health care under coronavirus is uh, to expand COBRA and to subsidize COBRA uh, for those workers who qualify. Uh, how how do you feel about that, Mark? Yeah, well, you're right. They attached um, um, this COBRA uh, subsidy bill to the HEROES Act that Congress passed uh, a few weeks back. Uh, and the HEROES Act in general is a really good bill. Um, it provides essential protections for frontline workers. It provides uh, wage supplements for those workers who have to continue to work. It provides a bailout for the uh, post office, which, by the way, may be out of business by the end of the year if we don't do something. Um, uh, the, one of our great uh, public institutions. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of good things in this bill, but we got outmaneuvered on the, uh, the health care portion of this bill. Um, and the Democratic leadership and um, a little group called AHIP, which is a lobbying group of the health insurance uh, industry, were able to uh, attach uh, the narrowest, least comprehensive, and most costly uh, uh, support for uh Healthcare for workers who are displaced under this crisis. It basically says that um, uh, the the government will pay uh, the full COBRA costs for any uh, out of work workers for the duration of the crisis. Mm -hmm. Now, COBRA can is can you this, explain what COBRA is? Yeah, I was Perfect. just getting ready to. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Co COBRA is this bill that was passed in uh, the 1980s um, that gives workers the right when they lose their job, um, if they're covered by an employment-based health plan and they work for an employer with, I don't remember if it's 20 or 25 more uh, workers, um, they have a right to purchase their health care from their employer at uh, basically at 102% of the cost of what the employer was paying for it. Uh, so it's a sort of a you know, it was designed to provide an opportunity for people to maintain health care coverage as they transition between jobs. Now, very few people ever took advantage of it because health care is so damn expensive. And when you lose your job, you don't have any money. So, you know, to pay, you know, have the right to pay 102 percent of your health care insurance was pretty much the right not to have health care. But, uh, you know, uh, they've latched onto that solution by saying, well, we'll pay the full cost. So what we're doing now is we're 
uh, if this bill passes, uh, it's stuck in the Senate right now, um, is first of all, it will only provide relief for a narrow subset of uh, workers who are affected by this crisis. That is those workers who already had employment health care, who worked for employers, uh, an employer of 20 or more uh, workers, um, and had the, all the other accoutrements of that health care. So it's only a narrow subset. Um, and even those workers who are eligible for it, even if they got their COBRA, um, you know, it's the least comprehensive solution because they still have to pay all of the crazy copays and deductibles and out-of-pockets that uh, uh, employment-based health care does, especially those who are suffering under high deductible plans. So in a country where a majority of working people couldn't even come up with $500 in an emergency uh, to say that you now have the right to have a plan that has a you know, a $4,000, $5,000 family deductible and, you know, uh, formulary on uh, pet, uh, uh, prescriptions and stuff just might not work it. And then, you know, finally, because we're now, if we uh, pass this bill, we're, we're now cycling healthcare through our private insurance system. We're getting 20%, 25% off the top right back into the private for-profit health insurance industry, uh, you know, at a time when, you know, we could desperately use that kind of public funding for, for, uh, to expand healthcare to everybody. So there's a lot easier solutions, uh, you know, basically, you know, Senator Sanders and Congresswoman Jayapal have said, you know what, just have Medicare pay everything that private insurance doesn't pay for everybody for the duration of the crisis. Let's just do that. You know, it's a crisis. Everybody needs health care. Uh, providers need to be sure that they're going to get paid during this crisis. So, you know, private insurance, you got to maintain the status quo. Uh, you can't uh, change anything for the duration. And Medicare, just send the bills to us. We'll pay the rest. That's the easiest, most elegant solution. And we'll then provide the basis for a more humane and rational health care system going forward. Right. And if that if we had that, if we had just, you know, Medicare covering everything, um, we would not have either of the crazy things that happened, which is that everyone loses their health care as soon as there's a public health crisis or that providers are losing money and are laying off doctors and staff and, and capacity right when we have a public health crisis. Yeah. Um, and I think I feel like everything you need to know about COBRA is that the only acronym they could come up with is a venomous snake. I mean, most <laughs> most programs, they come up with an acronym. It's like, you know, the freedom program, <laughs> the the safety plan. All of the best they could come up with was uh, was the COBRA Act. Um, but so, Mark, we had wanted to have a longer conversation with you going a little bit back in time about the evolution of the labor movement and its involvement with fighting for Medicare for all. Um just because you've you've been through a bunch of these fights, um, you know, during the Clinton uh, failed Clinton reform effort, during the Affordable Care Act, that's kind of went around when I joined the movement um, a little bit before that, um, and then we have this. I think we're going to have a new opening sort of quite soon around uh, the massive loss of health insurance that's been the result of coronavirus. So, if you're willing, we would love to have you back in a couple weeks for um, for uh, episode two of Labor and Medicare for All. Hey, I'd love to do it. I'm sitting here in my house just waiting for uh, people to talk to. <laughs> Excellent. You probably don't have enough Zoom calls. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, we're looking forward to it, and thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, this was a lot of fun. Have a great day.